Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. Welcome to the Scott Radley Show for this Wednesday, first day of summer. How good does that sound? First day of summer. We are here. Uh, glad you're along. Lots to get to today. Got to tell you, though, I, I have spent more than a f- bit of today unintentionally. Maybe you have been here as well. Thinking about this Titanic story and about this submarine and spending too much time clearly on social media, but really torn by this, really torn by this. I mean, torn by the fact that I don't understand how obviously bright people, I mean, they've done very, very well in life, get into a sub of some kind that is run legitimately operated by a $30 Logitech gamepad console steering thing, like joystick. I'm not making this up. This sub is run by a $30 joystick that you would buy on Amazon to go down to one of the most remote, foreboding, inaccessible parts of the world. I, I, I would like to believe that if I was going to spend this kind of money, that I would be in something that is built on something better than that. But the flip side is, and this is the part where I'm really conflicted, although this part is not really, I got to tell you, there are more than a few absolutely garbage people on social media. That's not news. I understand. But the number of people who are almost reveling in the fact that billionaires are on this sub and billionaires are going to get their comeuppance and billionaires are going to die, that's, that's not clever. It's not humane. It's not anything. It's just, it's, it's distorted and gross. How, how can you, how can you possibly, I mean, look, whether you are a fan of people who make a lot of money or not, how do you possibly find joy in the fact that other people are probably, if they're alive, are suffering and terrified and panicking and going through this? How, how is that possibly something that you can find some sort of humor or pleasure or joy in? I, I, I. I don't know. I, I, I just, sometimes I think that Elon Musk, that, that what he's really doing with Twitter is this is a Petri dish. It's like a lab where he's letting everybody say what they want to say. And then he's going to whittle out the people and highlight the people who are just the worst people on planet earth based on what they do on Twitter and point out who they are. Because this is how, how you, how do you possibly even if you hate the idea of billionaires, how do you find some sort of weird, perverse joy in this or make jokes about the fact that these people are, you know, I I don't, it, it, it's, it, it happens all the time. Not for this, not for this, but it happens all the time. And, you know, some athlete gets hurt and people, oh, you know, they make a joke about it or whatever. It, no, it's, it's surely we can be better than this, but Maybe not. I don't know. Maybe, maybe I'm too optimistic. Maybe I'm too optimistic. Anyway, let me tell you what's coming up on the show today. Not that. Uh, we are going to be chatting about grade inflation. This is a story that just will not go away. It keeps coming and more and more and more and more and more students in Ontario high schools, maybe across the entire country, but in Ontario high schools for sure are now getting grades like nine in high nineties. I mean, when I went to school, you had to, now it's not that long ago, but maybe when you went to school, like if someone got 95%, they were almost a genius. They were almost a genius. If you got 95%, nobody got 95%. Now thousands and thousands of Ontario high school students are getting 95% to the point that when universities see some of these grades coming in, you can apply to go to a program with 95, 96, 97% and not get accepted. It's stunning. And this is because the 
averages that have gone, that have been giving out have been going up and up and up and up. Maybe in part because students are doing better. But also, everybody believes because there are things going on in administration and other places where, you know, it benefits teachers. The, look, if you're a teacher and you're at board or your staff, whatever else, says, hey, it's good if you have students that do well. Who, who's a teacher who wants to have kids that do poorly? There's benefits to having kids that do well. Problem is, it's not real. We'll be talking to a student who is in grade 12 right now looking to go to university, dealing with this stuff. We'll be doing that in just a few minutes. Um, Bottom of the hour, here's a discussion that's been picking up speed and going on and on and on, and with all kinds of people having different points of view on this one. We are roughly seven months into the new term of Hamilton City Council, and the discussion has really started to pick up. I've heard it many places now. Is Andrea Horvath doing a good job as our mayor? We will talk about that at the bottom of the hour. Next hour, uh, here's one that will, um, if you are into sports at all, the Hockey Hall of Fame announced their class again today. And I am, I believe now, I have come to the conclusion now that the Hockey Hall of Fame inductors, the voters, the people who are behind the inductions are the same people who choose, who goes into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, that they are intentionally aggravating fans just to get people to talk about them because there is no possible way they can legitimately be choosing the people they are and more importantly, leaving out the people that they are, unless it's intentionally being done to antagonize us. We will talk about that one next hour because uh, who got in? I mean, look, they're all nice guys, I'm sure. And they were all decent players, but who didn't get in guys who were better than them. We'll get into all that next hour. As always, the first segment of the Scott Radley Show is brought to you exclusively by fox40shop.com. For sport and for safety, it has to be fox40shop.com. Enter the promo code RADLEY at checkout and you will get 25% off your order. By the way, tomorrow, very special guest tomorrow. Very special guest tomorrow. You'll want to tune in for this one. I uh, Personal to me, but a story and a guest that I, I really want you to hear tomorrow. So be sure to be here, especially in the first hour tomorrow, we'll be uh, getting to something very special then. But we're going to take a break right now. When we come back, grade inflation and how it's affecting high school students. We'll do that next. Stay with us. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Scott Radley Show here on 900 CHML. This is probably not the best time with my guest coming up to admit that I was not... um, the greatest of high school students. I did, I did great in all the stuff in high school, sports and drama and band and yearbook and all those things. The actual school itself, I, I, I probably could have applied myself more. My late father would have <laughs> happily told you that. He was an academic. It drove him insane that I was not as academically focused as he was. Maybe, though, it's just that my timing was off. Because what we're seeing in the last number of years, especially since COVID, is what a lot of educational experts are describing as grade inflation. We are seeing significant jumps in average grade scores that students are getting. Uh, The Toronto District School Board, for example, uh, in a two-year period from the moment the pandemic begun, the average grade 12 students mark rose from a 71% to a 77%. And there's lots of people who have looked at this and said, I don't know why, except there's got to be some outside influences because the last time that you saw that big an increase, it took 13 years for that to happen. Now, there's all kinds of stuff we could get into, but this affects real life people. There are students who are working to get into university, to get on with careers, who are now competing with other students who are all getting really, really, really high marks now. What do you do with this? I want to bring in someone who is, uh, well, she's a bit of an exceptional student, let me be honest. Um, uh, Aisha Mahmoud, she is not only a grade 12 student at Ancaster High School, she's a student trustee for the Hamilton-Wentworth District School Board. She is president of the Ontario Student Trustees Association. She joins us now. Aisha, thank you for doing this. 
Hi, thank you for having me. What do you uh, What do you make? I mean, look, I, I'm sure that your grades don't need any inflation at all to be really good. But as a student, do you see, in the time you've been in high school, do you see the grades around you going up? Well, I think the past couple years that I've been in high school have definitely been um, one of the most interesting times in history to be a high school <laughs> yes, student. Yes, um, In grade nine, uh, just I think just a few weeks into the second semester of my grade nine year, you know, it was um, quite a bit of a prolonged March break where we were sent home yes. because of the pandemic. Um, and we began an era of online learning, hybrid learning, quadmasters, um, just a lot of really unprecedented, as much as I hate that word. Um, but it's right. Happening for high school students. Um, I think when I look at great inflation, especially like post return to school from the pandemic, I think there's like a few things going on. So first off, I think the way that the culture around grades has shifted since online learning um, isn't something that we shouldn't be talking about. Like I, you know, I don't want to be throwing anyone under the bus, but it was very easy to um, be a little bit dishonest during online learning um, it was also really difficult and emotionally taxing time for teachers, students, um, everyone in the world, pretty much. Um, and sometimes we saw some students really struggling because they couldn't really engage with their with their teachers. And we saw some students whose marks were like weirdly high. Um, and we weren't in classrooms anymore. There was no monitoring how students were you know, doing assessments or tests and things like that. So, so let but me jump I, in for a sec. So you, as, a, yeah. as another student, you couldn't necessarily tell if Jenny, who had sat at the desk next to you, was really using the time during COVID while she was at home to just study her brains out, which could explain why her marks had all of a sudden shot up or if something else had happened. Yeah, that, that's exactly it. And I think what that led to is marks and grades becoming a sort of like currency of like, if I can get the highest grade possible, then I can, you know, then be admitted into whatever university programs I want. And the correlation between the amount you've learned in a class and the grade you the grade you earned just became less and less. Um, one of the things, Aisha, one of the things that a, a number of experts have said about this, and I mean, I, again, every expert has their own theory or opinion on mm-hmm. this. I don't know that anyone knows for sure what's going on. But one of the a number of experts have said one of the things that changed during COVID because of what you just talked about, it was hard to know who was following all the rules online, fewer tests, fewer exams, more uh, teachers having subjective opinions of who earned what kind of grade. And so, you know, as a, instead of handing in a math test and you can see exactly what Aisha got on that math test because you grade it it was a little more at the teacher's discretion. Have you had fewer exams? Would you think that that would make some sense that you've had fewer tests, fewer exams, fewer objective measures of what you've done? Yeah, so I think just on paper, I've written fewer exams than I would have if we had never, like, gone into online learning during the pandemic. But I think that what that kind of opinion, like, discredits for me is, still think it's important for teachers to have some like discretion towards students grades um, because even though you know tests are for some people might be a more objective measurement of a student's learning I think there's something to be said about observations teachers can make about students in the classroom um, which was very hard to do during online learning but it was also very hard to ensure academic honesty on assessments. So that's why I feel like when we were away from school, there was a huge gray area of like, what do we, what do we do now? Um, How can we know for sure that students are being honest about their assessments, but also we can't even see them engaging with content or showing their understanding of it in other ways. Now, I hate to ask you this because this has nothing to do with you, but Mm -hmm. your school, so a number of months ago, you probably saw this story, a number of months ago, there was a report that different schools, universities, it was the Waterloo University um, 
system that they use that yeah. leaked out that they they say well certain schools really plump up the grades more than other ones Ancaster High School as I recall was number mm-hmm. one on the list so again I look at everything you do I have no doubt that you're a great student and you mm-hmm. earn every mark you get but is it frustrating then to think well you know what I don't know what's going on but now I'm being penalized because somehow it appears that somehow the grades in our school are being seen as too high. Yeah, I mean, I'm very familiar with um, this story and the Waterloo adjustment factor. And I've, I've talked to students um, at my school and from across Hamilton who um, don't really know why they are now being put at a disadvantage because of where they go to high school um, and are kind of beating some of those odds to still get accepted to schools like Waterloo Um, and who knows what other universities might be, you know, taking those kinds of things into consideration. Yeah. But I think um, it is frustrating for the student, but I don't think that it's something to dismiss altogether. Like I think with Ancaster being at the top of the list, I think it is an opportunity for us to kind of think about the way we um, look at grades. And I know that for teachers and administrators, Um, There's a lot of pressure from families who want to make sure that their kids succeed. And um, yeah, no, oh, no question, no question. The teachers are under no question. The teachers are under a lot of pressure to make sure that their kids do well, uh, that the students do well. Hundred percent. We only have a minute here. Have you already? Do you already know what you're doing? Are you going to university, and do you already know what you're doing next year? Yeah. So next fall, I'll be attending McMaster for um, a Bachelor of Commerce in Business and Humanities. Um, I have to say that grade 12 and like all this grade talk, like it was a very personal experience for me this year. And I hope that after I leave that the culture around grades can shift and that we can put more of a focus on learning, um, without the added stress of, you know, these numbers are going to determine my future. Mm. Yeah. Because I mean, it's great that you got in Uh, congratulations for that. It is though reading a number of stories that have been written. There's a number of students in high school who have great grades. Mm -hmm. And yet because of this situation where universities are now skeptical about grade inflation, they're not getting in with a 94, a 95 and 86, which is, it's, it's ridiculous. It's absurd. It's absurd. But yet, what do you do about that other than, let me add, we got to run, but let me ask you this last thing. What would have happened if after that story came out about Ancaster, you had received a note saying, by the way, we got to knock our grades back a bit here because everyone, we got to make sure that, you know, Ancaster marks way higher. Now, What if all of a sudden you had lost five or 6% off your grades just to try and make it come back to some figure that like that would have hurt you then? Yeah. Uh, So I don't know how you balance it out. I, I don't know either. And like, I think that it's worth all of our time and effort to dig deeper into this problem so that students who don't deserve to be penalized for it aren't penalized for it, but that we're also not um, kind of ignoring the problem and hoping that it goes away. Uh, Aisha, you are, a, you are a great guest and you are uh, you're great at speaking. You should be doing a lot more of this um, <laughs> if you aren't already. Uh, that is Aisha Mahmoud. She is a student at uh, Ancaster, student trustee for the Hamilton Wentworth District School Board and the president of the Ontario Student Trustees Association. Thanks for doing this. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Let's take a very quick break. When we come back, we're going to change course here. We're going to talk about our mayor. How is Andrea Horvath doing? A lot of people talking about that now. We'll get into it next. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Summer music, huh? It is summer. We got the summer music out now. Scott Radley Show here on 900 CHML. There has been... I've clearly noticed this. I've clearly heard more of it in the last number of weeks. A ton of talk, a ton of posting, a ton of discussion about Andrea Horvath, about the mayor of Hamilton, and about whether or not Andrea Horvath is doing a good job as the mayor of Hamilton. It's been a little more, a couple days more than seven months, seven months since the new council was sworn in. And... I don't know if that is fully enough time to make any kind of judgment, but it's not a week or two. It's more than half a year. So let me bring in someone you hear here on 900 CHML every morning, starting at nine o'clock, going all the way until noon. And if you're in London, you hear him there too. His name is Bill Kelly. Sir, how are you? 
I'm doing well, Scotty. How are you doing tonight? I am doing really well. Well, better now. Happy summertime. I, happy summertime. And I can talk to you and it's not like crack of dawn. So that's even better. Yeah. Um, this is a really interesting question because uh, maybe we're jumping the queue on this, but boy, it seems like there's a lot of discussion about this right now, about whether or not Andrea Horvath is doing a good job. Because I think... I think f- uh, she came in with a lot of expectations. There were those who had a lot of great expectations, and I think there were people who probably came in with a lot of trepidation expectations of what she might do. Has she reached either of those levels of expectations in your mind? Um, probably not. And then let me backtrack a little bit to try to give you some context to this, okay? It was a uh, hard-fought mayoral race, as you recall. You know, the, the incumbent Fred Eisenberger wasn't going to run again. And a few people threw the hat in the ring. The two most prominent were Andrea Horvath and uh, Keenan Loomis, who had been the president of the Hamilton Chamber of Commerce. And uh, as, as the, the, the whole campaign wore on, because you and I talked about this during the campaign, uh, there seemed to be some, some concerns. Keenan and both of these, I know them personally. They're nice people, okay, and, and they're very dedicated to, to their jobs. Uh, there was some concern about, uh, about Keenan with his lack of political experience, which was none. Uh, and he seemed to vacillate on a couple of key issues, key issues rather, and kind of flip-flop, uh, which kind of swung the pendulum a little bit towards Andrea Horvath because they said, look, at, you know, she's been around for a while. She was on city council. She was uh, in Queen's Park for the longest time. Maybe she's, the, you know, she's got that political acumen. Maybe she's going to be okay. So I th- that probably won the day for her uh, in some areas. I, I still think a lot of people were concerned about that. But with that experience i think a lot of people had a higher expectation that look at you're not a rookie you know the game you know the municipal game you know the, the the provincial game you know you've dealt with the premier you've dealt with all these other people you better hit the ground running and and i gotta tell you uh, from a, an analytical standpoint i don't think she's done that i i think you know what it is i it's just you and i talked about this a couple hours ago when you asked me to come on today uh i think andrea right now and i'm only speculating because i haven't talked to her about it clearly I, I think she's trying very hard to show people that she's not an NDP mayor, that she's a mayor who happens to be an NDP. Uh, and that's kind of splitting hairs, but I, and no, I don't even I, know. I agree. I, I, Bill, I, I think the, uh, that I've said that on the air here. I wonder that exact same thing, that that when the when the election was over, and I, I wish I could think of his name, and I, I'm kicking myself, there's a political analyst from University of Toronto, I think, who lives in Hamilton, who drew, who put together <clears throat> Oh, I know the, the voting yeah, map. And I got a, yeah, I got a brain cramp too, but I know the guy you mean. And he drew the map of where the votes came from for mayor, and it was a donut. The, the old city of Hamilton was Andrea Horvath. Everyone else around it was Keenan Loomis. And I've wondered the same thing. Is Andrea, she is not a dumb woman by any stretch. She is a very no. bright woman. Uh, I wonder if she has wanted to ease into this a little so she doesn't come in with NDP guns blazing and scare off all the people outside who didn't vote for her, for better or for worse. I, and maybe that's not it at all, but I've wondered that very thing. And, and that's a label, and, and we see that manifest itself right now, Scott. Uh, City of Toronto is going through a mayoral by-election. You know, they're going to vote on Monday, and the the leader is 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 a an NDPer, well, an Jack about NDPer. Former wife. Yeah, and uh, the big fear. Of, uh, <laughs> Doug Ford talked about it today. John Tory, the the mayor that had to resign in shame, uh, finally came out and endorsed uh, one of Olivia Chow's uh, rivals. Uh, and they say it's it's the NDP, and and Ford was quite blatant about it. You know, Doug Doug Ford doesn't doesn't candy coat anything. Uh, the city would be a disaster with an NDP mayor, and you know whether you agree with that or not, there is a stigma to that. And, and I don't know if that's impacting the way Andrea's trying to, to govern uh, or not, but it's a factor in some people's minds. And now I know that, you know, the Hamilton election was, was a year ago and this Toronto's election now, but I'm wondering if that's that mindset was still at play. Uh, and I, I don't know if she's trying to prove something to somebody that, no, I can be, you know, an NDP. But look at what she had to face. And, and let's go back over those seven months that you just talked about, Scott. There have been some critical issues that the city has had to deal with. And, and some of the brand, you know, the newbies on city council with no political experience, uh, you might cut them some slack and say, okay, they, they don't quite know how the game is played. Uh, they got to kind of learn. There's a learning curve. Andrea's not one of those people. And, and when we come to things like, like you know, the, the, the tent encampments, what we're going to do about that, uh, the Cops Coliseum, or I guess it's the first time Harrow Center thing now, that, that contract and that thing is, is, is a, a, well, <laughs> A debacle in so many different ways. We're not learning much about it. We're getting double standards. What I think people are looking for, and I'm sure you've heard the same thing that I have about saying, you know, what's come on, Andrea, step up here. You're looking for leadership. 
you're looking for somebody to stay, take care of Stan and say, I'm in front of this issue. This is what we need to do. And instead, she's thinking, well, we, we need to get some consensus. Let's listen to the community. Blah, 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 blah. Okay, that's, that's nice. Now you're in the hot seat. What are you going to do? What's the decision going to be? Where's this going to go? And, and I, don't, I, I, I don't see a whole lot of that kind of leadership from her uh, to the point where I, I, I see a couple of other people on council that, that, you know, if there's a void, they're going to move into it, and they're trying to be the mayor, well, I uh, wondered, the de facto mayor. I wondered about that as well. I, I, wonder, I mean, it, it's kind of a funny thing that based on her provincial political history, you would say Andrea Horvath is very much on the left. She comes to Hamilton City Council as the mayor, and there are people who are outflanking her well to the left of where she is. And I wonder if she's trying also, and I don't know if this is the case, but trying to figure out where her, even though she's the mayor and she's the boss and she's the figurehead and she's the center of attention, I wonder if she's trying to figure out where she fits in all this. Well, and I would suggest this, and, and I know some people are going to think, this is not personal because, I, you know, I, I've known her, well, we got elected to Hamilton City Council the same year, 1997, uh, so I've known her, you know, professionally for some time, and, and, and you know, I, I respect her, her track record, but if you don't know, she and she ran, I think it was federally, before she ran you know, in the municipal election, so she's been in the political game for some time. If you don't know where you stand on that political spectrum after all those years, then you're in trouble. A big, big trouble. If you can't define yourself after all those years, I don't care who you are, Andrea Horvath or anybody else, uh, then, you know, the, the vacillation is, is eventually going to do you in, uh, especially at this. You can get away with it, frankly, as a city councilor, because uh, I've worked with a bunch of people that have been doing that for years. You know, they'll sit in the fence right now until they get blisters on it, uh, but they seem to survive because they can put a stop sign here and got a tree down here that somebody wants, and, and that'll garner them enough support. When you're the mayor... You have to lead. You have to lead. Now, give me a quick anecdote here. Okay, yeah. I know our time is limited. Um, when I was on city council, we and I'm not going to name the mayor because I worked with a bunch of them during my time there, uh, but there was some consternation one time with one mayor who seemed to vacillate, well, I want to build some consensus. I want to, you know, we've got to get more votes on this. And one of my colleagues, one of the people I respected immensely, I think one of the best councilors I ever worked with, uh, looked him right in the face and said, there are 16 people on this council. Get nine votes and get the hell out of it. Move this thing along. Stop trying to be, you know, Mr. You know, everybody loves me. That's not your job as the mayor. And that's what she has to learn. Get nine votes. If you believe, if this is the way you want to go, get the votes and do it. And, and yeah, some people are going to get pissed off at you. That's the job. If you want everybody to love you, you shouldn't be in politics. No, you should be in morning radio, where everybody loves Bill <laughs> Kelly from 9 till noon every morning here on 900 CHML and in London as well. Uh, listen, Bill, really appreciate the time, as always. You can, hey, thanks uh, for inviting me, Scott. Hey, I really no, appreciate it. You can, uh, you can go back to dinner and, uh, and, and watching, what was it you were watching earlier today? <laughs> I was channel surfing. You know, I, I, I start my, my, prep, my prep for the, the, the show really about 3 o'clock in the afternoon. I do what I need to do business-wise and everything after I get off the air. And I, I was just having a brain freeze. And I said, okay, i got to shut the computer off. And I go up and down the TV dial, and there's nothing on. I mean, just reruns of this and this game show and everything else. And I, I go to the NFL Network, and they're playing a game. For, uh, it's the Vikings and the Bears from 1994. And I said, <laughs> and I said, I, I want to watch this to see who, uh, Warren Moon. Oh, I didn't. Oh, yeah, he played for the Vikings. Who knew? And all these other names. I watched it for about ten minutes, and I said, okay, that's it. TV is off. There you go. Uh, well, get a book. Do something. Bill Kelly tomorrow morning will be breaking down the 1994 Minnesota Vikings <laughs> roster on here on 900 CHML. Bill, thanks for doing this. Always appreciate. Thanks, it. Scotty. Take care. Quick break. Back with Matt's story of the day. After this, they with us you're listening to the scott radley show podcast on 900 chml 651 here on the first day of summer scott radley in here on 900 chml it is time for matt's story of the day matt is filling in for ben who is filling in in the morning who was the whole dominoes set. Anyway, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to give Matt, who's on the other side of the glass here in the studio, I am going to give Matt three stories of the unique variety from all around the world. He will then ponder these, throw them into the Matt machine, whatever that might be, and uh, one will pop out. That's his favorite. That becomes Matt's story of the day. Matt, let us begin today in England. Uh, hmm, where is this? I think it was England, but now I'm thinking it may not be. Anyway, it's somewhere over in Europe. And um, police uh, put out 
a wanted notice for a criminal who clearly they were looking to find. And, um, yeah, he was, he was like big time offender. We need to get this guy off the streets. He is a real problem. We've got to get this guy. We've been looking for him for a long, long time. Uh, they found him. They found him. Uh, he was in prison the whole time. That's a, that is a system that is working like a finely operating machine. When, when the guy's already in prison and you have no idea. I mean, to me, that's sort of the legal system equivalent of looking for your glasses while they're on your head or your car keys when they're in your hand. You got to think that that's like was in a file cabinet somewhere. That's not <laughs> digital. That wasn't, <laughs> you hope, yeah, you it, hope. It's, it's got to be some old prison somewhere where it's, uh, yeah, I don't know how you get, I don't know how you lose someone who's already in prison, but oh well, say la vie. As I say, I have done that. I have... I'm not going to say how often. I mean, I don't want to sound like I've got some sort of brain injury, although some would argue, but I have walked around the house holding my car keys, looking for my car keys. That's not, you know, all that unusual. So uh, story number two, this is from the States where, um, are you a fan of the whole Tesla, whole electric vehicle car idea? I mean, if it was a little bit, I, I'm not like the biggest expert, expert, but I would say I'm not too excited about it right now. There, there are things that, you know, are causing some people some doubts. And one of them is I don't want to get caught driving this thing and the battery runs out when I'm in the middle of nowhere because I'm on a long haul. I get that. And, and that's something they're working on. Heaven knows here in Canada, we're going to spend billions of dollars to build electric vehicle batteries. So hopefully we do that right. But anyway, this guy in the States loved his Tesla didn't love the range that he was worried he was going to get caught. Um, so he installed a gas generator into his Tesla, <laughs> which I kind of think is, I, I'm not sure how that's not seen as defeating the purpose entirely, especially when you, he had to basically carve out the entire back of his car <laughs> to get it in. But he can now drive... Ad infinitum, I guess. Just keep filling up with gas. <laughs> should have, yeah, you should have just made it a hybrid. Come on. Should have just bought a gas vehicle. You Why know? not? I suppose. <laughs> Absolutely. All right. Story number three. Uh, this one, this is a bizarre one. Uh, this one comes from England. And uh, have you, this is really deep and really kind of somber, but have you ever pondered who might show up at your funeral? Not that we're hoping you're going to die anytime soon. I'm not offing you here, but have you ever wondered, like if I were to die tomorrow, who, how many people are there going to be people who show up? Who's going to be there? Have you ever thought about that stuff? Yeah, it's been like a passing thought, but I, I think who I have a pretty it? good idea. Yeah, but I mean, we've all pondered it. Like, you know, am I going to be Willie Loman from Death of a Salesman where literally nobody shows up or whatever? Well, this guy in England um, wanted to find out. So he went to the extreme. He faked his own death. His wife and his children were in on this, but nobody else was. They wrote online these lovely things to him. They booked a funeral. They had a cemetery. They had the coffin and everything. And all of a sudden, while everyone in black is gathered around the funeral site, a helicopter descends and out he pops. To which, I don't know, and we talked about this earlier this week with the, or last week with the woman in, I think it was Ecuador or Colombia, who had been, come back to life when she was in the coffin and started banging on the coffin. Same idea. I'm not sure if I'm standing by the grave and the guy that we're burying suddenly jumps out of the helicopter, if I'm celebrating or passing out. Because I'm imagining, am I like losing my mind here? Is this a ghost? Am I the only one seeing this? Um, yeah, he, uh, some of the people thrilled and excited, running up to him and thrilled and excited to welcome him back from the dead. Others, much less so. I would definitely be in the much less so category. If you have to cancel plans to be there, come on. Cancel plans and you've spent your, I mean, assuming. Traveling maybe. Well, and if you're, if you're, if you're close enough to this person that you decided to actually attend the funeral, you've probably expended some emotional energy on this and you've cried and you've been upset and it's all a big prank. I mean, I, but I have a feeling that if they know this person well enough, 
that probably won't be super surprised that he did they, this. They might have thought that he's the kind of guy who might have done this kind of thing. Yeah, it uh, it could be. But, uh, oh, sorry, he was in Belgium, not in England. Belgium. Uh, I don't know if that makes a difference to anybody. Those Belgians, I'm telling you, big death fakers. I don't know. Uh, will your story of the day today be the guy who was wanted by police on a countrywide warrant only to be found in prison already? Will it be the guy who owned a Tesla but didn't like the range limitations, so he put a gas generator into it? Or will it be the guy in Belgium who faked his own funeral to see who would show up? I got to go with the Belgian. Like, the, the effort deserves it. Just straight up. It is pretty the good effort. effort. It is pretty good effort. And even just renting a helicopter, the price. That's true. You know, the price of that. Wouldn't it have been ironic if the helicopter had gone down on way? I mean, we're not rooting for it. We're just talking about Titanic and this. We're not rooting yeah, for yeah, it, yeah. but boy, there would have been a really weird cosmic irony if something had happened. Absolutely. Anyway. All right. There's Matt's story of the day. We'll take a break. When we come back, the Hall of Fame got it wrong again. We'll discuss it. Stay with us. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Hour number two of the Scott Radley Show here on 900 CHML. Thanks for being with us. We are glad you are along on the first day of summer, which promises to be, oh, I mean, it's summer. I know there are, I never understood the people who always say, oh, my favorite season is fall. I like it when it gets cold. I like it when it gets crispy. Nope. I like it when it gets blazing hot, like blazing hot. I, and I know some of you hate the heat. I remember many, about a year or two ago, I was filling in on the morning show and Paul Tipple completely had us speechless when he said, you know, in the winter, you can always put on more clothes, but you can only get so naked. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a deep, insightful thought. But um, yes, that's true. But no, it is summer and the uh, living is good. Let's, uh, let's enjoy this. Here is your quiz question today. Please listen carefully and uh, no double entendres and yeah. What sport has a hooker? A position called a hooker. What sport involves somebody who plays a position called hooker? I'm telling you, we don't need all the comedy. I know the comedy's coming. I know poor Matt is going to hear the comedy. But we're asking you, what sport has a hooker? 905-645-3221 or star 9900. Those are the numbers to call. You can get Matt. Uh, if the lines are ringing, be patient. He'll get to you as fast as he can. And you can text us, 905-645-3221. If you want to do that, please include your first name if you're going to do that so we know who is giving us the answer. What sport has a hooker on the field as a position? That's your quiz question today, 905-645-3221. So what we're going to do, we're going to take a very quick break while you ponder that one. Come back to talk about the Hockey Hall of Fame and whether they blew it again. I say they did. We'll do that next. Stay with us. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. If there is a mystery on this great planet of ours, something that will never be understood, I think it can be whittled down to the Hockey Hall of Fame, which is a fantastic building, wonderful facility, great thing to visit, see all the trophies and all the stuff. Fantastic for that. But as far as inducting people into the Hockey Hall of Fame, I really sometimes think that they are doing things to antagonize us rather than to celebrate greatness. I really do. I really have gotten to the point where there can be no other explanation for why the Hockey Hall of Fame does the stuff it does. Case in point, you will remember a number of years ago that Pat Burns got in, the former coach of the Maple Leafs. But he didn't get in when he was ailing with cancer. When everybody and their mother knew that Pat Quinn was eventually going to go into the Hockey Hall of Fame. And the voters could have, as an act of mercy and kindness, could have said, 
you know, we know he's going in eventually. Let's put him in this year, which would have been the thing that humans would do. But they waited until he was gone and then inducted him. And then what's the point of that? I mean, he still goes in, but when you could have celebrated him and let him have that moment, that, that, that was one of the examples where you said, and Pat Quinn was a similar thing. And again, it's like, what are you doing? What are you doing? Well, today they announced, oh, and around here, it took how many years for Dave Anderchuk to finally get in? A guy who was one of the all-time leading goal scorers. If I recall correctly, I don't have it in front of me this minute, but like everybody in the all-time goal scoring list above him and something like seven or eight guys below him were all, other than active players who are not eligible, were all in the Hall of Fame except for somehow Dave Anderchuk. And then all of a sudden one day they decided, oh yeah, he was pretty good and they put him in. But it took forever. Well, today was the day they announced their new Hall of Fame class. And, you know, there's, there's some people here who you look at and you go, oh, yeah, that makes a ton of sense for sure. I mean, Ken Hitchcock, the coach, uh, you know, he's been around forever. He's done great things. He's been, you know, he's been a terrific coach for sure. Carolyn Ouellette, I mean, if we're going to induct women into the Hall of Fame, which is what we're doing and we should, uh, sure. But then you start getting into, okay, well, who are the others? Well, Henrik Lundqvist, the goalie for the Rangers, gets in. Never won a Stanley Cup. Eh, not too worried about that. There's lots of great players who never won a Stanley Cup. I don't think that it's a team sport. I don't think that you should be penalized, have your greatness diminished by the fact that you never won a Stanley Cup. But if we're going to say that winning a Stanley Cup isn't all that essential, how in the world... You put Mike Vernon in, who was an okay goalie. He was okay. He was pretty good, but he won some cups, but he was on some phenomenal teams. Tom Barrasso. Tom Barrasso. And here's the, here's the, so three goalies get in. None of them are named Curtis Joseph, who anyone who was alive to watch hockey when Curtis Joseph was at his prime knows that Curtis Joseph was a better goalie than Tom Barrasso and Mike Vernon. He was a, he, he was a better goalie. He didn't win a Stanley Cup. But if you've said that Henrik Lundqvist doesn't need a Stanley Cup, then you got to be consistent. It wasn't Curtis Joseph's fault they didn't win a Stanley Cup. He carried teams a lot of the time. In Edmonton, Curtis Joseph would get 50 shots a night and would be a star. How Barrasso and Vernon, and this is the kind of stuff that makes you l- go a little goofy. Pierre Turgeon gets into the Hockey Hall of Fame. All right, Pierre Turgeon was a good player, point of game guy, a little more than a point of game, played for a long time. Um, there, you know, there's nothing horrible about Pierre Turgeon. He was, he was, you know, fine. But how is Pierre Turgeon, by any standard, better than Alex McGilney, who is still not into the Hockey Hall of Fame? That makes no sense. Alex McGilney is now the new Dave Anderchuk, it seems, that for whatever reason, people don't want to put Alex McGilney in. Alex McGilney wasn't just a guy who put up a ton of points, wasn't just at times the best player in the league or close to it, maybe not the best player. There were, you know, because he was playing around the time of Lemieux and overlapped with Gretzky and that kind of thing, but one of the best players. Also, in some ways, a historic figure based on the fact that how he got out of Russia to play, out of the Soviet Union to play. He's not in the Hall of Fame. Pierre Turgeon is. You could even make the case, and I think I would, that if you're going to put Pierre Turgeon in, you almost have to put Theo Fleury in. They are similar in a lot of ways, but for the fact that Fleury had more postseason success. Here's the thing about the Hockey Hall of Fame. And as I say, I love the hall itself. I love going to the hall. The way they do the Hockey Hall of Fame, the way they do induction, it's like it's a secret club. You don't know who's nominated, unlike baseball, unlike basketball, unlike football. You don't know who's nominated. You don't know who gets what votes. You can't nominate someone. Only the people on the committee can nominate someone and they bring them in to be voted upon. What's the big secret? What, what's, the, what's the big idea that we as fans or whatever else are 
not capable of having input or knowing or what's the, what's the, the downside? This is what I don't get. What's the, and, and they won't talk about these things. They don't answer the questions about these things when people ask them. What's the downside to the Hockey Hall of Fame to saying, here's who's on our nomination ballot this year? Like, I really would like to know why someone like Alex McGilney never seems to be able to make it in. Has anybody ever brought his name up in the secret meetings that involve only the induction voting crew? Has he even been discussed? Has anybody thought Alex McGilney is not a Hall of Famer? And if they're, if they say that, okay, you know what? If somehow you have decided that a guy like that or Curtis Joseph, if, if the decision is this is not a Hall of Fame player, I mean, I'd love to know what the rationale is, but we don't even know if they've been considered. And here's the downside. Uh, some people will say, well, who cares what you think? Who cares what I think? Who cares what anybody thinks about this except those people? It makes no difference. True. But one of the great things about all the other sports halls of fame that maybe, you know, if you're smart, you learn from good things that other places do. One of the great things about these other places is they, they generate discussion beforehand as opposed to just rage afterwards because people are upset that we don't even know what's going on. The baseball hall of fame, the media votes on it. It's exceptionally difficult to get in, but you know who is up for induction, potentially, you know, what percentage of the vote they got, you know, they have to get 75% of all the voters votes to get in. And more recently, you even know which media people voted for them. So that if somebody decides they've got a, a grudge or whatever else, you can see, oh, you know, Bob, the media guy hated him. And therefore that's why he didn't vote for him. Or on the other hand, you know, some person gets put onto the baseball Cooperstown list as being eligible because five years after they retire and it's, you know, somebody who's entirely mediocre, barely on, and they get a vote from the hometown media person. You're like, yeah, okay. All right. You, you used one of your votes on him. Really? Really? Hockey does none of this. How is hockey, how does hockey somehow manage at almost every possible turn to find ways to not market itself in a way that would be particularly helpful? This I don't get. Dana White, the guy who um, is behind the UFC, the other day was, um, was talking about the NHL. I can't use the language on the air that he used. But um, let's just say we'll leave out the, the swear words. Uh, he, he took a shot at the old, dumb, bleepity bleep people that run the NHL. Because he's saying you don't know how to market. You would think that somebody would listen to a guy who has taken the UFC, which is clearly not everybody's favorite thing. I, I understand that not everybody is a fan of watching people get punched in the face. I understand that. I don't expect that everybody would like it. I don't think everyone should like it. Like it if you want to, don't like it if you don't want to. But the guy knows how to market a product. The guy has taken what was the fringest of fringe events and made it mainstream. So it's on TV every single week and has a ton of social media attention. And the Fighters in the UFC, I would suggest with great confidence, are way more well-known around North America and Europe and other places than NHL players. I would, I would put money, and I'm not a gambling man, I would put money on the fact that if you took the three biggest stars in the UFC... And the three biggest hockey stars in the NHL, and you walked them down each side of the sidewalk, more people would stop and recognize the UFC guys in a second. 
Connor McDavid could walk through almost every single main street in North America and not be recognized. Connor McDavid is your greatest player. And I would argue that probably if you were to show his photo to 80% of people in the United States, 80%, I bet, they would look at that and go, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Who's that? I might've seen him before. I mean, I'm not talking in a hockey uniform. I'm saying just in street clothes. They would look at him and they would have no clue who he is. Now, not everybody knows UFC fighters, but the number would be smaller, I bet. And then if it was an NBA player or an NFL star, I think Dana White is absolutely right that the NHL isn't great at marketing. It really isn't. And then you take the Hockey Hall of Fame, which is not the NHL, by the way. It's, it's different, although it involves mostly NHL people and most of the people who get voted in it are from the NHL. And you run your Hall of Fame in a way that nobody knows what's going on. Nobody can understand why people are getting in or not getting in. Nobody knows who was up for consideration. Nobody knows how many votes anybody got. Nobody knows if somebody was really close, that if Curtis Joseph's going to make it in next year or not. No one understands why a player like, say, Tom Barrasso, who played in the late 80s and early 90s, suddenly today is good enough to be in the Hall of Fame, but for 30 years or 20 years or whatever it is, wasn't. None of this stuff. What, what's the, wh- where's the upside to the NHL and to hockey keeping all this stuff secret? Where's the, where's the benefit? Where is the aid to growing the game, which is ultimately what you should be wanting to do, by doing stuff like this in a way that doesn't help? And who knows, maybe, maybe there are people out there who say, oh, no, 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 this, this secrecy, it's like, it's like, it's exciting. It's like at the Vatican, when the white smoke comes out of the chimney and you don't know which Pope is going to walk out onto the balcony. That's really exciting. Uh, Yeah, maybe, maybe, although I would suggest that probably, um, 99.99999% of people in the world aren't exactly up on their Catholic leaders. So they wouldn't know which Pope it was who walked out no matter what. You see a guy in white clothing and you go, oh, it's the new Pope. It's not like, oh, cool, look, it's Bob. Bob got to be Pope. Nobody, who, who has a favorite cardinal or a favorite bishop other than the person who's at your, your own church? Nobody is cheering, are they? I mean, am I missing something here? Is anyone, when, when the Pope passes away and the College of Cardinals gets together to vote on the new Pope, are there people gathered around in the bar going, go Bob, go, I want Pope Bob. No, no one has ever done that. But with the Hockey Hall of Fame, you've got name brand people. You've got people we cheered for, for years that we cared about that we rooted for, that we were fans of, and we don't have any idea what the process is going to be. I just don't understand how they continue to do this year after year and then make decisions like today where three goalies get in and none of them are named Curtis Joseph and only one of them might have been better than him but will we find out why he didn't make it or how close he was to getting in? No, of course not. No, of course not. Because why would we want publicity and discussion and information? I just am thankful that they finally got around to putting Dave Anderchuk in as a High Hamilton guy because it was long overdue and, um, we can now go back to just being like this because there's no other Hamilton guys coming up anytime soon. So, you know, we don't have to worry about it as much, but probably better for our, for our mental health and to, <laughs> to have to worry about that stuff. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. I was sent this list a couple days ago and I thought this was brilliant. It was... Um, if anyone ever watches action movies, and we all do at one time or another, 
Die Hard, of course, still being the favorite, but there's lots of other ones. If you ever watch action movies, they all have certain things, cliches that will come up in every single action movie or close to it. And what are those cliches that will be in almost every single action movie? Well, I'm glad you asked. I'm glad you asked. Let's go through some of these that you can now picture. Just think of your favorite action movie and see if this arrives or if this is true of your movie. In no particular, well, maybe in a little particular order. We'll work our way up to the ones that are absolutely guaranteed. We'll start out with the ones that are probably in every one. In almost every action movie, at some point, the good guy or good gal will eventually get the bad guy and have a chance to off them because the bad guy or bad woman has been offing everybody. And the good guy will finally be able to do it. But at the very end, they will put down their gun and not kill the bad guy. I mean, sometimes the bad guy dies. But more often than not, the good guy shows his great character by choosing not to follow through and rid the world of this person. Right? And usually, get to the next one, usually, very often, what nationality will the bad guy be? Go back and listen. I said listen, not look. Go back and listen. Usually, or at least very often, the bad guy is some sort of Eastern European. You have to have that dangerous sounding Eastern European accent that says, I am a bad guy. Uh, at some point in most action movies, especially in, uh, in ones that involve um, heroes that are not 20, you will hear the line, and I won't say it exactly as they will say it on the movie, but... Something will be happening. They've just been through a fight or something else. I'm too old for this crap. I'm too old for this. You'll hear that all the time. I'm too old. Bruce Willis must have said that in half. I'm too old for this. I'm too old for this. Here's another one. We're working our way through these. Cliches that appear in almost every action movie. The clearest way to know that something terrible is going to happen to a character in an action movie is if you see them announcing that they are, if this partner is retiring the next day, <laughs> if, if you are a main character in an action movie and your partner is retiring, guaranteed they are dying within five minutes of screen time. Guaranteed. Uh, here's another one. Anytime you get Anytime a score needs to be settled, you will have someone, if someone is pointing a gun or something, he's mine. It's not good enough for the other person to take care of the person. Oh, he's mine. I've got this one. I got this one. He's mine. Happens all the time. Uh, this next one, uh, you know, I think this is a probably a truism of most action movies. I have to think about this one a little more. Um, the gratuitous nudity shot. Somehow in the action movie, we got to get somebody naked. That seems to be the way it is. We, we, there seems to be, a, as this list points out, there seems to be an inordinate amount of action movies that at some point end up in a strip club just to be able to get the gratuitous nudity shot in there that, um, that will happen. There is the desperate but failing attempt to warn someone about something because in every action movie, someone will call, but they will have just, the person you're trying to warn has just walked out the door so they don't hear the phone or their, their cell phone is somewhere where they can't hear it. But there's always the desperate attempt to warn them of something bad that's going to happen, but that, uh, cannot be done. This next one, this, this should probably be number one on the all time list of action movie cliches, because it is the most ridiculous, I think, thing in any action movie. The fact that either the main villain or the hero are impervious to bullets and knives. You know, I've never been shot or stabbed, thankfully, and I intend to try and keep it that way. But if you ever have seen someone who has been shot even if they've only been winged in the leg or the arm. It's not nothing. (laughs) It it is not something that you get shot in the arm and just grab it with your other hand and go, oh, and then you carry on fighting like nothing matters. Bullets, I'm told, really hurt. And being stabbed really hurts. And yet you don't see that in in any kind of action movie. 
there's always got to be a tragic backstory in this, usually from the bad guy, but you know, oftentimes it'll be from the hero. They're definitely in every action movie now, it's become a thing, especially, I think Die Hard may have been one of the ones that got this one started. There has to be at least one or two catchy one-liners. The, the hero has to have some line that when you walk out of the movie theater, you'll be repeating. I mean, of course in Die Hard, it was yippee ki you know, the rest. But there's lots of others. I remember the one in, um, uh, we talked about this before, in, uh, what was it, with Arnold Schwarzenegger and uh, the one with the, the alien creature, I can't think of the name of the movie now, where, where the one guy, I don't got time to bleed. You're bleeding. I don't got time to bleed. You got to have a catchy one line in there all the time. Uh, love this one. Love this one. This is another great one that always shows up in the action movies as far as one of the cliches. When the bad guy or bad woman, we don't want to be sexist. When the bad person, when the villain finally gets the hero in a compromised position, they've, they've got them, they're on the ground. The villain is pointing the gun at them. They're just about to kill them. Rather than kill them, what do they do every time? Explain the entire thinking behind their entire criminal enterprise. Here's why I did this and blah, blah, blah. And it goes on and on. They explain everything about what they did, where they hid everything and who was, would that really happen ever, ever, ever? I'm not sure, but I'm guessing no. Uh, there is always the, uh, the situation in every action movie where you never have to reload your gun. That's always a good one. You can fire 400 bullets without a reload, unless you're the bad guy again, then you have to do it. Uh, there is the last second time down, time ticking down Bob bomb dismantling. That's always a good one. Every James, does every James Bond movie have to have one of those? I think there's always got to be, and, and the, the villain very courteously always puts a visible digital timer on, on every bomb. So you can see exactly how many seconds are left. I mean, what would ever happen in one of these movies if there was not one of those digital clocks on a bomb? So you did not know exactly how much time you had and you ended up being blown up. Well, I guess it'd be the end of the movie is what it would be, but it's always nice that they have that. Uh, and of course, every single action movie must have, must have explosions. There has to be explosions. And in the explosion, the coolness level of the hero will directly correspond to how cool he looks when he walks away from the explosion that's in the background behind him without him ever turning around to look at it or her. Your coolness, I mean, if you have ever seen anything explode, it is impossible not to turn around and watch that explosion. But if you're really cool in an action movie, the explosion goes off behind you and you just keep walking without even turning to look because that's cool. That's really cool. Uh, in most action movies, if there is a woman who is involved, either as the hero or simply as the damsel who needs saving, uh, she will probably without any difficulty whatsoever be able to sprint across a parking lot in the highest of high heeled shoes and never twist her ankle, which always seems to me to be kind of a miracle, I would think. And one more, well, no, two more. One is that they will often end in romance. They, they will, whatever the situation is that, um, that has led them into a situation, they will fall in love, of course, during this traumatic situation. But my absolute favorite part of any action movie, the cliche that you will see in every action movie, if you, if your hero is now facing seven guys who all want to fight him, they will never attack simultaneously and beat him up. They will come at him one after the other so he can dispatch them single-handedly one at a time. I mean, every hero would be dead if you just came at them all at once, but you don't do that. I mean, Steven Seagal made a career. Bruce Lee made a career. They got to come at you one after the other because that's how you get better action, I guess. Anyway, there's the, I love that list because every single movie, every single action movie, that's there. Here's your quiz question this evening. Got nothing to do with action movies and don't get confused by the wording in it. Got nothing to do with that either. What sport has a hooker? What sport has a position called hooker? 905-645-3221. 
star 9900 or text us at 905-645-3221. What sport has a position called a hooker? Let us know. Back with the answer and those who knew it after this. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Tomorrow on the show, uh, just a quick plug here. Tomorrow on the show, I have a very special guest on, uh, someone who is very close to me but is going through some really, really, really tough times. And uh, we are going to be chatting with him but through his speaking device about uh, what it is like to live with and deal with ALS. He is uh, he is in a battle right now. We'll be talking to him tomorrow. So uh, tune in for that. If you've, uh, I, I had meant to do this quite honestly for the ALS walk. He's in Waterloo. Their walk is this weekend. I didn't realize, so I'm a little behind that Hamilton's ALS walk was a week or so ago. Uh, but wanted to do this because um, it is just, it is, it is difficult. It is really a difficult thing, but he will explain what it is like in his own words living with it. So be there for that. Uh, your quiz question today, hard to seg from that to this, but your quiz question today, the question was what sport has a hooker? It's a position, by the way, on the field. Uh, the sport is rugby. Rugby has a hooker. Uh, Marissa, who is in training today, she is training with Matt. Marissa. Yeah, it was a tricky one today, but we got a few a few good guesses in there. And who are the names? We have Walter, Bruce, Frank, Hush, Wayne, Maria, London, Dave, Roy, and Gino. Well done. And someone who texted us and did not give their name, which makes it really difficult to tell who got that one. So if you were the random anonymous texter, well, you got it right, but we don't know who you are. So let's give them a name. Chauncey. Chauncey was the other one. I don't know where we got that one from. Folks, I'll be back tomorrow. Please tune in. Love to talk to you then. Have yourself a great evening. Hey, enjoy summer. First day today. See you tomorrow. Want to hear more? Download the podcast on iTunes or Google Play and listen to The Scott Radley Show weeknights from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML.